and Sabrina. And on this Yeah, you sounded like those like robots on phones who are like, Hi, you've reached student universe. How may I direct your call? Someone like who's that. A little bit too much time on the phone to see the universe, it sounds like. Oh, trust me. Yeah. Oh dear me. <laughs> but yeah, welcome back everyone. This fortunately is not robot recorded. We are here in the flesh. <laughs> not really. We're coming through your headphones. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> Let's not talk about flesh. Anyways, we're here to finally finish our two-part series on Adelaide Lebigiard and Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun. Listen, y'all. As we always say, times have been rough. So. Yeah. <laughs> My times haven't even been rough. Like I've been fine. <laughs> We both have COVID. Actually, yeah, that's true. At separate times, and that like pushed everything yeah. out. And then we yeah. like emotional I was turmoil yeah. of just yes. 21st century life. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot. Very true. It's a lot. But yeah. So, we are back um, a little bit later than we said. Yeah. <laughs> if you listened to our last episode, that constantly yeah. referred to next week, um, what we yeah. want next month. <laughs> Um, yeah, gotta keep you guys in suspense sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> gotta keep them guessing. Yeah, but yeah, if you need a refresher, the last episode's there. If you guys want to just remind yourselves of who we're talking about, but we're talking about two painters from 18th century France, and when we left them off last time, it was 1789, the eve of the French Revolution. So. Um, that's more like the Cuban thing. Viva la revolución. What did they say in France? <laughs> Probably the same thing. I don't know. But I've only heard that associated with like Cuban propaganda like during that time. Anyways. But maybe France too. I don't know. Anyways. So yeah. Before we get into that, I just want to rewind a little bit back to 1774 to explain how we got to the French Revolution. So keep in mind also that 1774 was the year when our sisters, not literal sisters, but sisters <laughs> in sistery world, <laughs> Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun and Adelaide Lebigayard, Gaillard, their careers were really starting to take off and it's the first time they exhibited together at a salon. But let's zoom out and talk about France as a whole for a bit. So in 1774, King Louis XVI became king of France. The country he inherited was the crown jewel of Europe. It was a super powerful nation and a cultural epicenter, and they wanted to keep it that way. France had been able to maintain that through a series of wars in the 18th century, namely the War of Spanish Succession and the Seven Years' War. Then, of course, in 1776, we get the American Revolution. Yes. France helped us in the war and then went into debt, and America never really repaid them, unless you count the world wars about 150 years later. And I do count them, thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> but it's like, oh, like very, very late. <laughs> but did they say a date of when we needed to have it paid back at, or did they just say? <laughs> I don't know. So 
War is obviously super expensive, but that didn't affect the upper classes, known as the Ancien Regime, which consisted of nobles, clergy, and the monarchy. None of these top-tier members of society had to pay taxes, whereas the rest of French citizens, the 80% who were classified as peasants, were saddled with the burden of paying off the country's debt. During Louis XVI's rule, half of the national budget was spent just on paying the debt. He hired several financial advisors to help him out, but they failed because they couldn't get nobility or clergymen to pay taxes, which, like, why would you if you're like, I haven't had to pay taxes in the past, like, 200 years. Like, I'm not going to start now. Yeah. (laughs) In addition to these financial troubles, there was a philosophical revolution going on, the Enlightenment. So new ideas and philosophy that influenced the revolutions in France and America were what made up Enlightenment kind of philosophy. And some important names are Montesquieu, Rousseau, and Voltaire, all of whom happen to be French. They question the divine right of kings and propose the idea of a social contract between the ruler and the ruled. And if you grew up in America and took American history, those terms are probably really familiar because those were the foundations of our country too. Here, here. <laughs> On top of all this, there was a bread famine in late April and May of 1775, which led to food shortages and high prices, and eventually over 300 riots and pillages that happened in the course of just three weeks. My main takeaway from the whole French Revolution is just that when they revolt, they revolt hard. They do not hold back. They're just like, Three, that's 100 riots a week. <laughs> like, that's a lot. But also, isn't this where let them eat cake comes from? She didn't really say let them eat cake, but yes, this is around the same time. I hope that somebody said it. Yeah, it's clever. Whoever made it up for, like, the newspapers at the time was clever to say it. So, also, the French population had grown from 18 million in 1700 to 26 million in 1789, And Paris had over 600,000 inhabitants, which was really big for a city at the time. And roughly one-third were unemployed or didn't have regular work. And this increased population without much improvement in agricultural technology made it hard for the country's farmers to support a growing population. So everybody's hungry and angry and poor. You know, recipe for revolution. I can relate to that. Yeah, I'm like, oh wait, I'm all three of those things. (laughs) Tensions were clearly high, and although he's not the best leader, Louis could still recognize he had to do something. On May 5th, 1789, he called for the Assembly of the Estates General, which is a giant assembly that hadn't met for the past 150 years. This represented the three estates of France. The first estate was the clergy, the second was the nobility, and the third was everyone else. Everyone else category technically included peasants, but it usually ended up being represented by more wealthy members of the third estate, like lawyers, local officials, businessmen, and landowners. Louis wasn't happy with what the representatives of the third estate had to say because they wanted real change, and he felt like they were just holding everyone back by, like, not just letting things continue as they are, so he kicked them out. This is 610 men from around France, and the only ones at the assembly who actually paid taxes on their money. He kicked only the third estate out? Yeah. Yeah. So the first estate is the clergy. The second estate are the nobility who don't pay taxes. So they're like, whatever, things are good. Like the third estate 
even though the representatives there were wealthier than like the majority, they still had to pay taxes. They still could see like people starving like around them. Mm -hmm. And so they were like, we have to do something. But yeah. So the third estate started meeting in a nearby tennis court and said they would keep meeting there until there was some real change. And the people, like the people of France, formed a national guard to protect the third estate from King Louis, who obviously wasn't too happy about this meeting. The third estate representatives started calling themselves the National Assembly and eventually the National Constituent Assembly. This is the group that famously stormed Bastille to free prisoners and also to steal weapons. Uh, not just a nice thing. <laughs> they were strategic. <laughs> then they, with the help of Thomas Jefferson and the Marquis de Lafayette, aka the best character in Hamilton, Marquis de Lafayette. Yeah. <laughs> wrote the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen, which was approved on August 26, 1789. Meanwhile, the peasants found out that while they were dealing with food shortages, the king was hoarding food in the palace. These peasants, mostly women, marched on the palace of Versailles. Louis and Marie Antoinette's solution was to move closer to Paris to be closer to the people. The people don't like you. Yeah, it was like, we already know how this is going to turn out, but go ahead. Like, try to just, like, be buddies with them. The revolutionaries started to punish the first and second estates and also introduced a non-religious calendar, which was actually really different than what they had before. I don't recognize like the French calendar at all. And I, this kind of shows how secular France was on its way to becoming. Wait, so they, the calendar they use now is the new one or is the old one? The one they use now is the regular one, like our, our kind of cal- like Gregorian calendar. But between 1793 and 1805, they used something called the French Republican calendar, which was a secular calendar. So in the face of revolution, many nobles had fled the country and then their land was taken by revolutionaries. By 1791, even King Louis was... Sorry, I wrote such a weird sentence. Even King Louis was like, I need to get out of here. (laughs) I don't know why I wrote that. Like, that's something you would say. Anyways. And he decided to flee to his brother-in-law, the Holy Roman Emperor. But unfortunately for them, they were caught on their way out and brought back to France. Since Marie Antoinette was Austrian, the Austrians and Prussians swore allegiance to the monarchy. Because of this, the revolutionaries then invaded Austrian Netherlands, which I didn't even know was a thing. You know, but that sounds like a bad idea. Yeah, well, we'll see how it works out. But this was um, part of the Southern Netherlands between 1714 and 1797. They're Austrian Netherlands. There you have it. So they invaded them in 1792, and they won and took part of the Netherlands. So France was, even though they're in the midst of revolution, doing a good job. Then, for some reason, Russia was like, okay, I want in on this action too. But then they also lost. And amidst these victories, the revolutionaries deposed the king and declared a republic. Now they had no use for him, so he was put on trial and then executed in January 1793, and Marie Antoinette was executed a few months later. His execution initiated what is called the Reign of Terror, which is a period of mass suspicion and mass execution. Marva, would you like to give a guess of how many people were executed during this time? How long is this time? 
It's September 5th, 1793 to July 28th, 1794. So about nine months. Okay. And I'll say the 900s. <laughs> oh, Marva. 41,000 people. <laughs> when they say the streets were r running with blood, like yeah. they're literally buckets of blood. So, like it's insane. What, that's <laughs> it's like an entire college. It's like in a, if an entire university was just slaughtered, like 40,000 people. Like, yeah. But, like, how many people is it a month? I don't know. I'm just trying to fact check myself because there's actually a lot of contradictory things. Some people are like 16,000, some like 23,000, some like more than 50,000. So there's a lot of different numbers, but this was the number that I found first. So, <laughs> so that's what it's just whatever came up first on Google. You're like, okay, <laughs> no, I was like watching like something about the French Revolution and that's what they said. Mm -hmm. But I just want to recognize like it could be wrong. It could be less. It could be more. Okay, well, but it's, it's tens of thousands of people. 4,555.5555 people in a month. A month. There's not that's even crazy. enough time. Like, that's, does, that can be impossible. It's crazy. Because then that'd be 151 people a day. Like, what, they just yeah. have people lined up down the block and like, next, next. Probably. I don't know. I'm not a French, like, French Revolution expert, but it is that tens is of thousands of people. people. an hour if you do it for 24 <laughs> hours a day. One every 10 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't take long. You just, yeah, it's crazy. Anyways, why do we always get into math of things? Like, <laughs> anyways, okay. Um, what's really crazy is that even one of the leaders of the revolution, Robespierre, mm -hmm. was arrested and executed in 1794 towards the end. So after he was executed, a new government called the Directory was installed. This was relatively staple and lasted until 1799 when Napoleon, Napoleon Bonaparte, came into the picture. 1799 is when the French consulate began and when the French Revolution is considered to be officially over. So, 10 years later, we can finally rest easy, wash the blood off our shoes. Yeah. I think you're going to need new shoes after. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so now that we have a rough idea of what happened before and during the revolution, let's return to our story. As we talked about toward the end of our last episode, Adelaide had been getting in with the royals, which tremendously helped her career. In 1787, at the Salon de Louvre, she had exhibited several portraits of the king's aunts, and the following year, his older brother commissioned a group of massive portraits measuring 17 by 14 feet tall, and had agreed to pay her 30,000 livres for them. On August 25th, 1789, the salon opened to the public, and the very next day, the new Declaration of the Rights of Man was approved. So naturally, people's attention was on these crazy shifts in power, in government, and not on art. Only 16 critics reviewed the Academy's exhibition compared to 34 at the previous salon. But even with much smaller turnout, Adelaide managed to turn heads. 
Her portrait of Madame Victoire was mentioned by almost every critic there and marked a transition from her neoclassical style interior portraits to Rococo-inspired landscape portraits, a genre more associated with Elizabeth. Critics couldn't help but compare the two painters, which they always did, and one critic even said Adelaide was, quote, attempting to surpass Elizabeth. That same critic, though, accused her of plagiarism and suggested that her former teacher, Vincent, had painted these for her. So you can just take what he says with a grain of salt. He's kind of like a hater. And after the August Salon, Adelaide redirected her attention to helping build the New Republic. One of the things regular people could do to help the revolution was make what was called a patriotic donation. This became a popular practice after on September 7, 1789, 11 women arrived at the National Assembly and donated a box full of gold and silver jewelry and trinkets, which they had collected from 21 women to donate to the cause. After these 11 women became front page news, lots of people started making patriotic donations, Adelaide included. On September 25th, she sent 400 livres to the National Assembly, along with pledges from three other Academy painters, including Francois Vincent, who was her teacher. On September 30th, a group of women artists and wives of architects, painters, and sculptors gathered in the Louvre to make a big donation. They had spent the past two weeks collecting contributions and ended up collecting 16,000 livres. Adelaide was one of the five commissioners of the coalition, and one of her students was the secretary. Unlike Adelaide, who donated to the revolution, Elizabeth had little compassion for the poor and rebellious, and instead sided with the monarchy and aristocracy. She and her friends started getting targeted by angry peasants. Strange men would loiter outside of her home and shake their fists at her, which just seems weird, but I guess that's what happened. <laughs> And one time she had guests over and on their way they were stopped by peasants. The word peasants is just like starting to sound funny. <laughs> <laughs> on their way they were stopped by peasants who climbed up their carriages and shouted, next year you will be behind your carriages and we are the ones who will be inside. What do you mean also behind your carriage? I guess like walking. Okay. I don't know. I mean like I love a good peasant but... Um, these peasants don't seem very good. Um. <laughs> They're angry! <laughs> they haven't had bread in like six months! I love a well-behaved peasant. But... <laughs> well-behaved peasants rarely make history. Yeah. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. Paris was quickly becoming unsafe for Elizabeth. After the Salon of 1789, where she presented some really amazing paintings, her physical and mental health were so bad that she was unable to work. Same. Girl, same. Yeah. She stopped eating and lost a lot of weight and moved in with a family called Bronillard. Her host tried to nurse her back to health by calming her and feeding her soup and wine. I'm like, wine? <laughs> like, you're depressed? Drink up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, because she couldn't eat solid foods. Like, she was, like, not in a good place. At this mm -hmm. time, she writes in her memoir that she was asking herself, what is the use of living? Why bother taking care of oneself? Okay, that's, that's dark. I know. She was in a dark place. <laughs> I mean, her whole world is, like, crumbling around her. Like, her whole livelihood is, like, mm -hmm. these rich people who have nothing better to do than buy loads of paintings of themselves, and now they're being mm -hmm. executed. Um, not yeah. yet being executed, but being, like, driven out of their palace. Mm-hmm. 
Because remember, she was like the personal portraitist, official portraitist to Marie Antoinette and like kind of like friends with her as well. So it's like really hard. Mm. Yeah, that would suck. So Elizabeth left the Brunyard house to go home for a while and then stayed with her sister-in-law's family. But what she really needed was to leave France. By October, when a mob of militant women had taken the royal family from Versailles to Paris, that's the storming of Versailles we talked about earlier, Elizabeth started making arrangements to leave France. She had, she had to disguise herself as a working woman and travel on a public stagecoach. Oh, the horror. I know. I would never. I would rather <laughs> die. Take me to the guillotine. Yeah. And she was traveling with her nine-year-old daughter and her governess because the night before her departure, National Guards had come to her house and told her she wasn't allowed to leave. So she was like, I can't leave like as myself in my carriage. Mm-hmm. So she had to like escape. She departed for Rome the next day and on her way traveled through the Alps. That experience of sublime natural beauty, plus probably leaving Paris as her world around her was crumbling, really helped her come out of her depression. Rome was the most sensible destination for her, not just because many of her colleagues from the Royal Academy had visited there and the French Academy had a location there, but also because it was a necessary rite of passage for serious artists to study the masters of the Renaissance in Rome. On her way there, she made several stops, one of which was in Parma. While she was there, she was elected a member of its academy on November 3rd, 1789. When she stopped in Florence to visit the famous galleries and collections, the Grand Duke asked her to contribute a self-portrait to the Uffizi Gallery, and that Grand Duke was Marie Antoinette's brother. Okay. So she already had, like, a connection with him. Mm-hmm. And so do you think, did he, like, know who she was before she got there? Yeah, I think so. As she, like, everywhere she goes, like, people already know her and are like, mm-hmm. oh, come stay with me, like, come paint me. Mm-hmm. Like, she has, like, a good reputation. Come paint me. Yeah. <laughs> the portrait was displayed alongside Angelica Kaufman, one of the other most famous female painters of the late 18th century and whom Elizabeth was a really big fan of. While Elizabeth was setting down roots in Italy, back in France, Adelaide was dealing with a whole host of drama. Just like how in politics there were factions, one led by Robespierre and one led by Lafayette, who varied in terms of how radical they were, the Royal Academy was also divided into three factions on the issue of revolution. The Officers' Party was the first one, and they were traditionalists who resisted change and insisted that the Academy continue to be called the Royal Academy and keep its traditional three-tiered structure within the Academy, with officers, full members, and a grace, like the three different levels. Another group, generally younger and including Jacques-Louis David, wanted the institution to be restructured as a more democratic system. Instead of officers, everyone would share the power and not have any more royal interference. The third group, called the Central Academy, wanted reform and a more democratic, less hierarchical structure, and wanted to establish order before the National Assembly could dismantle them. We like the Central Academy because they, I'm just telling you what we like. (laughs) They were the the only group that welcomed women as equals. The other two factions thought that women shouldn't get any say in determining the Academy's fate. Wait, even the third one? The first two didn't believe women should have any say, but the the, the Central Academy did. Mm -hmm. I do like an officer, though. (laughs) 
I guess. It's not like an officer, like a military officer. It's just like people who are in charge. Also, Vincent was a member of the Central Academy. And because Adelaide likes him, we like him. One member of the Central Academy wrote an open letter to the Royal Academy's director on November 20th, 1789, and said that, quote, it is an abuse that a law should fix at three or four the number of women academicians. Either none should be received or all who have the true talent and legitimate rights to membership. Every honest woman is a man for the academy. This is classic, like, old school feminist logic where it's like, oh, like, you're like a man because you're smart. And so you should have mm-hmm. be recognized as a human. <laughs> but whatever. Yeah. We'll let that slide. Um, <laughs> this idea of letting in unlimited women was, of course, Adelaide's own idea. She had proposed that women should be able to be on the institution's governing board. Even if they didn't have power, they should just be allowed to have the title. Adelaide was attacked by both the officers' party and David's group. The officers' party didn't directly attack her, but they were really concerned with the role of women in the academy and also took some shots at Vincent. According to the officers' party, since women legally couldn't swear to legally binding oaths, the academy's regulations shouldn't concern women because they technically don't apply to them. It's like some weird legal loophole to excluding mm-hmm. women. Mm-hmm. They also said but that... But I'm like, does that mean that women can just do whatever they want because the rules don't apply to them? That's a good point. <laughs> They also said that, quote, the cares of maternity would stop women from really excelling in their careers. We still say this today with women in, like, corporate jobs and, or any career, honestly, which we know wasn't true based on Elizabeth's career. She had a baby, and she was literally mm-hmm. working up until she gave birth and then continued working, yeah. like, with her little nine-year-old traveling around Europe. So, anyways... They also questioned the morals of women who would want to be in a room full of men. Right. Yeah. I mean, that is a fair question. <laughs> but okay, all, about all these men who are in a room of <laughs> naked girls, like nobody's like, mm, what's your motivation here? Um, <laughs> we know what their motivation is, yes, and it's not this. Yeah. And their dig at Vincent implied that he had been seduced by Adelaide and couldn't be an impartial judge of her work. So, yeah. David's group was less subtle. They wrote a letter to the National Assembly against both the officers' group and the Central Academy. In the part about the Central Academy, they blamed Adelaide, like, just directly, for influencing them so much and used her connection with the royal family to mar her character. They said she, ha- she quote, has done the arts the service of giving us portraits of Mesdames, the king's aunts, for which they have undoubtedly paid generously, has obtained a pension which it is to be hoped she will enjoy for 60 or 80 years and which will only cost the people 60 or 80,000 francs. So very angry in the name of like revolution. Later, their group would write that painting was too difficult and, quote, incompatible with the modest natures of their sex and that mother and wife are more precious for them and for society than their success in the arts. So... Just putting women in a little tiny box. The tiniest of boxes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Despite her lack of favor in the academy, Adelaide tried to stay in their good graces by making multiple donations, sometimes anonymously, and once donated a portrait of the director, even though he was so against women in the academy. 
Even though the Academy had these three factions, all writing letters and rewriting statutes, the ultimate decision of what should happen to the Academy came from the National Assembly. On August 21st, 1791, they passed a law that the Salon had to open its door to all artists, not just men, and not even just academicians. Anyone could submit art to be displayed. In the end, 180 artists were displayed at the next Salon, including 21 women. Adelaide was one of these, but she made a major faux pas. First of all, her career and financial situation were already on the rocks because the king's aunts had fled the country without paying for several portraits, which sucks. Wait, but they didn't pay her? Yeah, they didn't pay her. Like, they had commissioned Uh these portraits and then were like, there's a revolution, and then had to leave. Uh Uh-huh. I mean, what was she expecting? No, I know, yeah. Before we leave. (laughs) But it's like, oh, like... When you started these projects, like, you didn't know that was going to happen. Plus, the patronage system was just thrown off because there were way fewer wealthy patrons and way more artists. Because now anybody Mm -hmm. can be an artist and everybody who's Mm -hmm. rich was like, I got to get out of France. (laughs) But Adelaide also made the mistake in her selection of paintings to display. She showed her portrait of, of Charles Roger, Prince de Beaufermont which was a great example of her talents, but had too many references to the Ancien Regime with the prince's ribbons and medals that showed his honorific titles in an ornate background. Plus, this prince had not joined the National Assembly, so he wasn't exactly a friend of the revolution. Yeah, why did she choose to exactly. put him? That, that's what I'm saying. Like She made kind of a mistake in her own selection. But I feel like this is like a... Very easily avoidable mistake of, like, <laughs> there's a revolution on, maybe I should. Yeah, like, read the room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, needless to say, the painting was poorly received. She had one painting of the radical leader Robespierre, but the majority of her paintings, more than a dozen of them, were of members of the National Assembly who were more at the center of the political spe- spectrum and ones who wanted a constitutional monarchy. So they weren't, like, you know, like, the prince, like, completely, like, out. But mm-hmm. they were wanting something more moderate. Mm-hmm. So I feel like she, she should have gone with, like, flowers or something. <laughs> yeah, but she's a portrait artist, so. Yeah. A portrait of a flower. Yeah. <laughs> she also painted some of the women associated with this group called the Fuyant. I don't know how to say it. It's F-E-U-I-L-L-A-N-T-S. And I'll send it to you so you can see the differences between this and her older portraits. So this style of portrait post-revolution became a lot more simple. As you can see, there's just like mostly black background, which is also why the Charles Roger portrait that I was talking about earlier didn't go over well because it had this like ornate fancy background. So yeah, as you can see in that one, it's a much more like ornate background um like gilded chairs and like fancy clothes and stuff so that's kind of showing the shift mm-hmm. um whereas mm-hmm. her her portrait of madame de Genlis, which was one of the um women associated with this group was praised for its naturalism so since she was in good graces with the fuyant they convinced the national assembly to put a portrait of the king in the hall of assembly and the national assembly agreed at first they then decided Adelaide should be the person to do the painting and that Jacques-Louis David could do a second version, 
which is so crazy because David is like super super famous. I just feel like this is a, this is going to be a trap or something. Like yeah, <laughs> I mean, we hated the portrait of the prince. Let's do one of the kings. Yeah. Yeah, so it just it didn't end up happening because the monarchy mm-hmm. was abolished the next year and then King Louis was executed. But this mm-hmm. was like a it's just cool to see that like they had thought of her like as the first person mm-hmm. to do it. Um, yeah. But yeah. So Adelaide wasn't going to stick around and watch all of her friends and former patrons get executed. She, mm-hmm. Francois Vincent, and a few other friends escaped to the countryside 18 miles outside of Paris. But just because she was safe doesn't mean her paintings were. On August 11, 1793, the directory of the Department of Paris forced Adelaide, quote, to deliver her small and large portraits of the former prince and all the studies related to these works to be devoured by flames. Okay. Yeah, so a lot of her stuff was destroyed. Mm-hmm. In 1795, after Robespierre had died and things calmed down a bit, The Committee on Public Instruction, which was a committee that gave awards to artists, writers, and scholars, considered Adelaide and described her as, quote, a woman artist, victim of vandalism, who is worthy of the benevolence of the government due to her talents and the losses she has suffered. And they ended up awarding her 2,000 livres, but that's a lot less than she would have gotten for, like, her Mm -hmm. major paintings that she was working on. Yeah. So, we left Elizabeth back in 1789, fleeing Paris to go a bit farther than Adelaide, all the way to Rome. She arrived in late November 1789, and during this period, Rome was full of refugees from France, so she made friends really easily. She hoped to recreate the fabulous and successful life she had had back in Paris, emphasis on successful because she had come there with very little money and really had to start selling portraits soon just to support herself. Mm-hmm. By April of 1790, she'd been elected as a member of the, the Roman Academy of St. Luke, which, if you remember, Adelaide and Elizabeth both started off in a French academy by the same name before they joined the Royal Academy. She lived in Italy for three years, moving from Rome to Naples in 1790 and then to Venice in 1792 and lastly Milan. And while she was there, she painted portraits for Marie Antoinette's sister, who was the queen of Naples in Sicily, and Marie Antoinette's nieces. While in Italy, she still participated in the French Salon of 1791 by shipping her paintings there. In February 1792, a decree back in France had authorized the confiscation of property belonging to emigres like Elizabeth. Her husband petitioned against this, claiming that she had only left France to study art in Italy and wasn't just, like, escaping France. Wait, but so her husband was still there? He didn't go with her? Yeah, he was still in France. She just took her daughter and her governess, like, her daughter's governess. Mm-hmm. Um, but his protestations were in vain. In November 1792, her husband was arrested, and her brother was arrested the next month. Her husband also tried to restore her reputation by publishing a pamphlet titled Historical Summary of the Life of Citizen Le Brun Painter, in which he defended her artistic and moral integrity and pointed out that she didn't have a massive fortune from her work as a painter, which is his own fault because he spent all of her money, um, Mm -hmm. but that she only owned two mortgaged houses. So like people, just like they kind of did with Adelaide kind of imagined her as this, like, super bougie, rich, Mm -hmm. like, artist. But it's, like, they were just living painting to painting, paycheck to paycheck. Like, Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, but to be fair, as someone who has no mortgaged houses, um, having, <laughs> yes, two, yeah. having two sounds pretty good. Also, yeah, like, like Elizabeth was quite extravagant. Like, mm-hmm. she did, like, host lots of parties and, like, salons and stuff. Mm-hmm. She had a governess. Yes, but, like, even though they were associated with the royal family, they weren't actually as mm-hmm. rich as the royal family. They were yeah. working for their money. Um, yeah. So... Later, in an attempt to save his family's property, Elizabeth's husband requested a divorce on the grounds of desertion, which was granted on June 3rd, 1794. So they ended up being divorced, not because they, like, hated each other, but just as, like, to protect their assets. Elizabeth definitely missed her family and friends, but she continued living her best life in Italy. She went to Milan as her last stop out of Italy, where she saw Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper and went to lots of opera performances and art galleries. After leaving Italy, she moved to Vienna in 1792 and lived there until 1795. When she arrived, Austria and France were at war. Since she was on the side of Austria, who was on the side of the royal family, and had such close ties with Marie Antoinette, whose family ruled in Austria, Elizabeth was welcomed with open arms. She came with lots of recommendation letters so that she was instantly accepted into exclusive Viennese salons and invited to important events. She painted portraits of Princess Maria Josefa Her- Hermengilde von Esterhazy. That's weird because oh it's God. like a half Spanish name and then it gets German halfway through. <laughs> so I was like, what's going on? Um, Princess Maria Josefa Hermengilde von Esterhazy and her sister-in-law, Princess Caroline von Liechtenstein. Although her life in Vienna was very similar to the life she had had in pre-revolutionary France, constantly getting news about her friends and acquaintances, not to mention the royal family, being beheaded during the terror, started to send her into a depression. But she made a, quote, conscious, deliberate effort, according to her biographer, to basically numb herself following Marie Antoinette's execution. And she continued working throughout what's what must have been one of the hardest years of her life. I just imagine her, like, getting letters all the time with, like, yeah. bad news. Yeah, I can't imagine knowing one person who got beheaded, let alone knowing, like, I know, so many. People. And, like, living in fear that, like, your husband, your brother, like, will be next. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Yeah. Recently divorced and with no property to her name, Elizabeth decided to follow the money to rebuild her fortune. And based on the extravagance she saw among Russian elite in Vienna, she determined that Russia was the place to be. On April 19, 1795, Elizabeth left Vienna to move to Russia, where she stayed for about six years, from 1795 to 1801. By the time she arrived in St. Petersburg that summer, she was 40 years old. She already had made several Russian friends through an ambassador she had met when living in Naples, so she had some friendly faces there when she arrived. I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail about her life in Russia, simply for the sake of time, and because Elizabeth lived a really long life, but <laughs> it's worth noting that she that in Russia she painted portraits of Catherine the Great and her daughters. Queen Catherine was a true product of the Enlightenment and was a huge patron of the arts and an art collector. And by the time she left Russia, Elizabeth would refer to it as her second homeland. Hmm. So did she speak Russian? Or did they speak I think French? she just spoke French, because I know when she was in Austria, it was 
the biography was saying that like everyone in Vienna just spoke French. It was like the lingua franca or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing that was the case in Russia. I don't know if she ever like picked it up or maybe while she was living there mm-hmm. picked it up. But it seems like most of mm-hmm. the aristocracy and like people in her circles like all spoke French, regardless of if they're from like Italy or Austria or Prussia or mm-hmm. wherever. Yeah. yeah. So the same year Elizabeth was establishing her new li- a new life for herself in Russia. Adelaide was returning to her old life in Paris from the countryside. By the time she returned, though, much of the art world had changed. The Royal Academy no longer accepted women, and several of Adelaide's former patrons and associates had been executed on the guillotine during the last two years. But like we talked about, anyone could, could exhibit at the Salon. So at the Salon of 1795, 18 female painters exhibited their works. This was great for women as a whole, but not so great for Adelaide's career because she no longer stood out as a rare, talented woman. Mm. Also, mm-hmm. new policies that tried to equalize the playing field meant that artists' accomplishments couldn't be printed in the pamphlets for the salon. So instead of being called an academician or the first painter to the Mesdames, which are the king's aunts, she mm-hmm. was simply listed as student of Monsieur Vincent, and so her importance was reduced to the man she'd learned from. And at this point, like, she's been a career artist for, like, 20-something years. Like, mm-hmm. she, I don't think she really yeah. needs to be, like, labeled that way. Yeah. But so would they put her name or they didn't? I think they would put Madame Guillard and then, like, student of mm-hmm. Monsieur Vincent. But, spoiler alert, Vincent and her get married. And so when that happens, she just is mm-hmm. called Madame Vincent, like, student of her husband. Okay, so she did seduce him. I mean, that's, like, 30 years, like, after they met. Like, she was not – maybe she was playing the long game, but I think they just were spending all this time together, moved to the countryside together during a war. Like, you're going to get close. Anything happens out in the countryside. Honestly, yeah. So, yeah. Of course, though, whenever women get rights, there's usually a backlash, and this expansion of women participating in the salon was no exception. The late 1790s brought more exclusions to women from formal institutions like the National Institute of Sciences and Arts. We already talked about how they couldn't officially be members of the academy, as well as newspapers and pamphlets urging women to be more domestic and discouraging them from painting. One of Adelaide's very last paintings was probably a response to this. Her portrait of Marie-Gabrielle Capet from 1798 is of one of the young women she had trained as a painter and who appeared in Adelaide's 1785 self-portrait with two pupils, which was like that really famous huge painting I sent you last time. And this portrait depicts Marie as painting a miniature and looking directly at the viewer. So like we talked about in the first episode, miniatures were one of the few acceptable styles of painting for women in 18th century France. But for Adelaide, it was a stepping stone to her incredible career as a portraitist. The portrait of Marie actually shares some resemblances with Adelaide's own most famous portrait. And I'll just read something from Laura Arucchio's book, which analyzes it. So this is a little bit of a long quote, but I think it's worth it. Like the seated artist in 1785, Capet, who's the, the subject of the painting, holds a palette in her left hand. And like Madame Adelaide, a velvet cloth descends from the back of her easel. Other features, too, are familiar. The roll of parchment, 
the desk's reflective surface, the imitation of materials ranging from leather to linen to softly flowing tresses. Exquisitely rendered though they are, these small details are but quiet echoes of their majestic precursors. Indeed, the saddest reiteration of all might be the central figure of the artist. Whereas the fully displayed figures of exquisitely attired female artists had dominated the compositions of self-portrait and the portrait of Madame Adelaide, Marie-Gabrielle Capet is squeezed into a tight space between chair and desk and picture plane, and little of her clothing can be seen. Whether intentionally or not, this reduced vision of Capet's accomplishments seems to point to the diminution of Lebiguiard's own legacy, giving form to her losing struggle against professional collapse by capitulating to gender-appropriate norms. So, sorry, that was long, but I just like how it kind of, like, shows, like, all these little pieces of the painting that are similar, like, kind of echoes of the earlier painting that was, like, this huge grand scale and, like, showing Adelaide's influence on other women and, like, her artistic, like, potential. And now she's kind of shrinking mm -hmm. down her own student and, like, like we were saying, like, putting her in a box that's, like, made for women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so, so this one I think we could see as kind of, like, resisting this, like, patriarchal, like, oppression of women. But one of her other paintings, um, like, even later, the 1800 Salon, which hasn't been located but is described in a pamphlet at the Salon, shows that Adelaide had started to buy into the anti-liberated woman politics of the late of the late 1790s because it apparently depicts a quote mother who values her husband's lessons above her own labors but i struggle to fully accept this interpretation because it's just based on a description probably written by a man and i think the actual painting if we ever find it could reveal a lot more mm -hmm. that's fair also in 1800 adelaide finally married her teacher and longtime rumored lover vincent and they lived in the louvre along with Adelaide's student, Marie Capet, who's in those paintings. Wait, did you say they lived in the Louvre? Yeah, so art, like, academicians could live in the Louvre. There's, like, apartments for them. And that was, like, one of the issues is that, like, women weren't allowed to have accommodations there because I think we talked about mm -hmm. this last time. They're like, oh, they'll run into men in dark corridors and, like, scandal. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at her. She married her teacher. Oh, my God. <laughs> they were not wrong. Because her, his dad was her teacher, and then he became her teacher. So they're, like, more, like, they were, like, on an equal playing field before. Mm -hmm. But, yeah. Anyways, so, yeah, like, but women weren't allowed to have, like, accommodations there. So I feel like the fact that she married him might have given her a chance to actually live there. And then mm -hmm. I don't know how her student ended up living with them, too, but that's nice. Messy. Yeah, I'm like, I don't really, yeah, I don't know what she's doing there, but whatever. By 1800, returning to France was finally a possibility for Elizabeth. Napoleon was now in power, which meant the revolution was officially over, and on June 5th, her name was finally removed from the list of émigrés. When she ultimately left, she was sad to leave her friends and even her daughter behind, because her daughter had gotten married in, I think, 1799 in Russia. In Russia? Okay. Yeah. Um... But they were, like, kind of in a bad place because I don't think her mom super approved of her marriage. I don't know a lot of details about mm -hmm. it, but it seemed like they had, like, a strained relationship at this point. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But still, hard to leave her. Like, Russia's, like, not easy to get to from France in 1800. So. Yeah. 
But also, so what? The daughter just never saw her dad again. I guess not. I don't know if she ever visited France, her daughter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so she was also worried about what was what she was even returning to. She wrote to her brother, quote, I cannot hide from you what goes on in my poor head and heart at the thought of returning to Paris. As I draw closer to France, the memory of the horrors that occurred there comes back so vividly that I dread seeing, again, places that witness these dreadful scenes. It's kind of like, if I was a brother, I'd kind of be like, you weren't even here. <laughs> like, I'd be kind of annoyed. I'd be like, I saw heads in the streets. And you're like, I imagined it. And it was really bad. <laughs> Sorry. You should not be a therapist. I will. N- I could no. never be a therapist. <laughs> Anyways. Like, but my pain. <laughs> he was literally there. She wasn't. Like, she heard about these things know, from him. But they, but they were her friends. Yeah, I'm sure he had friends, too. And she's a weak and sensitive woman. She is very weak and sensitive. Um, I'm like, bring back that numbness you felt before. <laughs> Just oh kidding. Just kidding. Yeah. Are you kidding? Okay. It's probably obvious that her mental and physical health were not great at the moment so she stopped at some baths in prussia on her way to france and she also spent six months in berlin where she painted queen louise of prussia i say she stopped at the baths because those were for you know health people back then thought taking baths in (laughs) water like special waters would make you better um going to the spa does generally make me that's true yeah she arrived in paris on january 18th 1802 In her memoirs, she describes how she felt when she set foot on French soil for the first time in over a decade. Fear, pain, joy gripped me simultaneously, for there was a mixture of all this in the thousand sensations that overwhelmed my soul. I wept over friends I had lost on the scaffold, but I was going to see again those who had survived. This France to which I was returning had been the scenes of atrocious crimes, but this France was my homeland." But, as she suspected, Paris was not the same. There were still slogans of the revolution written on walls like liberty, fraternity, or death. Places that had been named after the royal family had been renamed after the revolution. There was a whole new class of the nouveau riche. The fashion was different. Men's fashion wasn't nearly as colorful and over-the-top as it had been. It was now darker and more somber. Whereas women's fashion had become more colorful, but also more natural, to match the neoclassical style. Mm-hmm. So just everything just looks different. Her readjustment to Paris was made easier by her loved ones, though. The night of her arrival, her ex-husband hosted a concert at their old home in her honor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so sweet. She spent the following days and weeks reconnecting with old friends, as well as getting acquainted with the new generation of painters that had risen up in her absence. Although she tried to make the most of it, Elizabeth was just really not vibing with this new Paris. She often felt restless and melancholic. She decided to go to London, and she set out on April 15th, 1803. So she was really just there for like a little over a year. Mm -hmm. The same month that Elizabeth was starting at another new chapter of her life, Adelaide was closing her final chapter. Before she passed away, though, Elizabeth and Adelaide met at least one last time. In September 1802, they attended a dinner party hosted by an American artist, Benjamin West. Elizabeth was seated directly next to the host, 
and just a few seats away was her so-called rival, Adelaide. I think this image of them sitting at a table together answers that all-important question, is this town big enough for the both of us? Their careers and their undocumented but most likely pleasant and professional relationship tells us yes, even an art world run by men is big enough for two talented, ambitious women. I would just like to point out, though, that whether it's, you know, causation or correlation, they both were living in Paris, and then there was a revolution. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think, like, I'm they're responsible saying. for, like, the biggest travesty in Europe in that whole century. I mean, how do we know for sure? Yes, we don't. Um, I thought that was a really beautiful sentiment, Marva, and you just are like, ha, 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 like, no, they ruined everything. (laughs) Women can never coexist. Uh, I was so proud of this paragraph. You don't understand. (laughs) Whatever. She keeps me humble. Okay. I'm almost done, so you can keep your snarky comments for... (laughs) What? Okay. Elizabeth went on to live for 40 more years and passed away at the ripe old age of 86. She continued to travel around Europe and occasionally returned to France, but detailing the rest of her life would require an entire other episode. So instead of doing that here, I can strongly recommend listeners who are interested in her to check out her memoirs, which are available in English for free on Google Books, as well as Gita May's biography about her, in the Art Curious podcast, which has an episode about just Elizabeth as well as about Elizabeth and Adelaide's relationship. I will say, though, that when she was buried, her tombstone had the epitaph, Ici, enfant, je repose, which means, here, at last, I rest. And as someone who had been so productive her whole life, everywhere she went, mm-hmm. at every age, I just think that's such a great way to, like, end her life. She finally yeah, got a I break. Like that. Yeah, Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's the story of... Wait, wait, but when did Adelaide die? That was 1803, April. Did you say that? I said it euphemistically. I said Adelaide... <laughs> I said Adelaide was closing her final chapter. Because I, I hate when I say, like, and she died. It sounds so severe. What did you think that meant? I knew that, like, eventually she was going to die, but it was just, like, as if it just, like, petered off, and I was like... No, I said, the same month that Elizabeth was starting yet another new chapter of her life... I know, I heard that part. (laughs) I heard that part, but you didn't actually say, like, when did she die, how did she die, where did she die? She died of an illness. I kept, I looked in multiple things, nothing, I couldn't find anything that said what the illness was. In Mm -hmm. April, I think maybe April 24th, it was like a week or so after Elizabeth left um, that she died. Mm -hmm. She died, okay? Does that make you feel better? (laughs) It's more clear. I mean, these are kind of key details in telling the story of someone's life. Okay. Okay. But yeah, that's it. Well done. Is it well done? Elizabeth. Okay, well done for them, not well done for me. Everyone's a critic. It only took me a month to research this all. I give up. I just give up. (laughs) Don't give up. You did good, too. I mean, I'll send you my notes later. (laughs) Oh, my God. Okay. Um, 
Okay, well, great job, Sabrina. That was a super interesting story about two lady painters. Um, yes, and... it was about that. <laughs> and Vive la France, I think, isn't that it, maybe? Yeah, Vive la France. Vive la France. Um, concluding thoughts. Yes, um, I do really like the name Adelaide, and I think that it would be a good name if I had a daughter. Um, I have a question, Marva. Did you listen to yes. the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> yes! Okay. Oh, gosh. I mean, it was a lot to take in. Okay. Um, and But it was all very interesting. And I think it's because there was such a break between the first episode and this episode. I just don't really remember that much about, like, what their relationship was like. So you know that's I mean? the thing. Like, they don't really have, between the two of them in terms of letters, mm-hmm. diaries, they don't have any documentation of their relationship. Mm-hmm. Everything we know about, quote, unquote, their relationship was constructed by, like, male art critics and, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. you know, newspaper writers, journalists and stuff who, like, just speculated about them and would say things yeah. like, oh, like, their rivalry, like, or she's imitating her or she's trying to, like, surpass her. Mm-hmm. Like, all these things that, like, made art historians kind of think there was this, like, rivalry mm-hmm. between them. But there's just no evidence for that. Mm-hmm. And that's why I was yeah. trying to point out at the end that they just kind of, they were still, like, friendly enough to, like, get dinner and, like, sit mm-hmm. a couple seats away from each other and it wasn't, like... Yeah. Oh, like, how dare she be here, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It, like, it would have been, like, if they hadn't gotten along, it would have been really obvious if they're sitting at the same dinner yeah. table together. Yeah. And, like, probably somebody would have said something. Yeah. Um, and, like, like, Elizabeth has, like, really detailed memoirs that she wrote in, like, the mm-hmm. later years of her life. And I feel like she uh-huh. would have brought it up, you know, and been like, mm-hmm. oh, this girl was so evil. Like, you know... Yeah, I feel like it's, like, the opposite of the um, Melita and Hannah um, story. How so? Where, like, they were also, like, rivals in their kind of field, but it was, Mm. like, very well known that they hated each other. Yeah, but, I mean, one was a Nazi and one was a Jewish woman, so, I mean, yeah. Yeah, but, (laughs) but, I mean... Still, like, before even, like, it got, like, before Hannah became, like, a full-on, like, Nazi, mm. she still hated Melita. Like, she would mm. still say, like, negative things about her. And, like, yeah. Melita would be like, oh, I don't even care about her. I don't even yeah. know that she exists. No, yeah. I feel um, like when people have negative it, opinions, they don't tend to stay quiet. Like, yeah. so we yeah. would know, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And so they probably weren't, like, best friends or something, mm-hmm. but, like. And, like, maybe they didn't write letters to each other, but maybe, like, when they saw each other in person, mm-hmm. like, oh, hey, girl. Yeah. I love um, your painting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. How did you do that blue? It's so pretty. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, that's their story. Yeah. Which is kind of, like, fun in a way of, like, it is slightly different, like, because it's a pretty, like, neutral relationship, mm-hmm. whereas, like, like, normally a lot of the times the things that we cover are, yeah, like, definitely. very strong relationships yeah Um, yeah and it was interesting because I was kind of like as I was doing this part I was like is this part even necessary because their lives have drifted so far apart like one's mm -hmm. like pro-revolution like living in France one's like Mm pro-monarchy like living in like like Italy and Russia like Mm -hmm. they're not really like overlapping or running in the same circles anymore 
But I think mm-hmm. when I got to the very end and I was like, oh, they're still, like, in the same world. Like, when they, they both come back to France, like, around the same time, like, or back to Paris. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, like, have the same culture shock experience of, like, what happened to my city. Like, yeah. So mm-hmm. I think yeah. it's worth telling yeah. their stories together. But they definitely, like, they're not a sisterhood in the traditional sense. Like, but I think, mm-hmm. like, as we can see, like, in their work, like, there are influences, like, like adult, mm-hmm. like, Elizabeth style, like Rococo style, like influence, like um, mm-hmm. Elizabeth's neoclassical style, like so, like they are seeing each other's work, like every year or every other mm-hmm. year, like at these salons, like mm-hmm. sometimes more often. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I feel like also like shared experiences is one of like the biggest thing that like bonds people mm-hmm. together. So like their shared experience of like being female artists yeah. in like this time where it was not like cool or popular mm-hmm. of like being non royal or like nobility mm. but interacting in yeah, those social yeah. circles Definitely. going through the revolution like yeah. there's a lot of things that do tie them together mm-hmm. yeah and I mean they were literally admitted to the academy on the same day when there was only mm-hmm. four women total in the academy so like they were yeah. very close like always like mm-hmm. orbiting each other's world super closely yeah yeah well, that's interesting. Um, thank you. I've literally never heard of these people before. Except for Elizabeth, I think I saw maybe, like, some kind of movie where she was, like, a minor character. Well, I think, intimate? no, but her painting is, because you talked about this last time with, like, the erasure of oh, the baby. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was mm-hmm. her painting, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. And mm-hmm. she was yeah, friends cool. with, I think, Marie Antoinette's best friend in that movie, who, like, leaves France before mm, like mm-hmm. um the storming of Versailles happens she okay. and Elizabeth became friends I think in Italy they became quite close okay so uh-huh yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah well that's cool yeah because they're definitely two people that I probably never would have heard of otherwise so Good. thank you for introducing me yeah. to them putting the untold in sistry untold <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah uh, taking out the untold. Mm, telling the untold. Because now we've told it. Okay, I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm, we're done. We're done. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, well, next time, listeners, we will have a special guest episode. It's going to be fun. It's going to be cold. It's going to be snowy. Um, there's going to be lots of death. Um, yeah. So just mentally prepare yourself. Yes. Yeah, but it'll be an exciting tale, and that will be a two-part episode series. So, mm-hmm. but it won't take a month between them. <laughs> yeah. Trust us, we've already recorded both parts. Yes. So. Yeah. Yeah, but thank you guys for coming back and listening. It's always lovely to talk mm-hmm. to you. And yeah. yeah. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed listening to us. Yes. Um, all right, shall we take it out of here? Is that a phrase? Anyways, um, ready? Yeah. One. Two, three. This This is Sistery. If you could put like a little bit more of like feeling into it, it would be good.